Welcome back to Nothing Rhymes with Garrett. I'm your host slash namesake, Chris Garrett, along with uh, Sam Mulberry. That was a very adept fade out. I didn't know you were going to actually. Not do my that. first time. Well, <laughs> my first time like this. This is a very lo-fi version of Nothing Rhymes with Garrett. We are actually sitting in a hostel near the Tower of London in well, London. Uh, we do a World War One travel course every other year, Sam and I, and this is our fourth time doing it. And one feature of this course, Sam, is that we end up having a lot of time to talk with each other. And there have been a few moments where we thought, oh, we should really podcast that. And it occurred to us, why don't we podcast That's that? That's right. So Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's is, uh, shall we say, an occasional series. That I think this is technically our fourth episode. The last one was a bit unusual, but that was uh, something like fall of 2017. So this is our triumphant return. That's right. Okay. People have been clamoring for it. We're going to deliver it as best we can, given the limits of... A couple of iPhones, uh, downloading a song off iTunes, and then trying to slap something together before we head to Belgium to tour battlefields tomorrow. So, so, so if the uh, if the sound is bad, no apologies, right? No, it's this just, is just this is how it was meant to be. This is art, I think. Actually, we'll talk about that later. So, if you're new to the show, and why wouldn't you be at this point? Here's how nothing rhymes with Garrett's works. Uh, this is built around the conceit that nothing in English rhymes with my last name. We've we've talked about this for a while. I've lived with this name for 43 plus years. Apart from the language German, I found nothing that rhymes with Garrett's, but that's not going to stop us from trying. So Sam and I have each come with three words. We're going to ask the other person, does this rhyme with Garrett's? And even if it doesn't, maybe we'll talk about it a little while. Uh, these will, I think, kind of be London-themed to some extent, or... Trip-themed, for sure. Trip-themed, something we're doing on this trip, which lasts for another couple weeks. So we'll see. If this goes well, maybe we'll do, like, a Paris or Munich-hosted version of Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's. All right, but this is the London version. Uh, should I go first, Sam? Go, uh, go for it, yeah. Okay, so my first word is old. Does that rhyme with Garrett's? Old. Does old rhyme with Garrett's? I don't think old rhymes Nothing with Garrett's. Nothing rhymes with Garrett's. But here's why I thought of old. Because I, I think if you were to... I almost thought we should survey our students. Like, what are some words they associate with London? And we didn't do that, but I'm just going to substitute myself empathetically for them and say I would guess a lot of them think one thing probably that draws them to London, um, in some ways, you know, maybe you know, repulses them about London, is that it's old. So we, uh, we get out of our tube stop for our hostel... I think the first thing you see is the Tower of London, which... It's pretty old. It's pretty old. It's a thousand years old. And then you turn your head to the left and you see a Roman wall, which is like 900 years older than that. Makes the Tower of London a mere baby. Right? Exactly. Um, but that does hint at something, which is that there are archaeological layers to London. I was We were at the Museum of London on Sunday, and I went through... I didn't do the really ancient pre-Roman stuff, but even just going through, like, the Roman, there are kind of iterations of London, and there's the Anglo-Saxon period, and then, like, and it gets rebuilt and rebuilt. We're close to the monument, the Fire of London, which destroys four-fifths of the ancient city of London. And actually, the more I've thought about it, the more I've struck how, how new London is, or old is a really relative thing. So the first thing that struck me about that is... If you kind of look away from the central landmarks of London and, and turn yourself towards the fringes of London, the main landmark that stands out is a crane. Like it, it strikes me every time London is being rebuilt at an astonishing rate. And like the 2012 Olympics uh, um, kind of energized this, but it had been going on for a while. But that's been true generally of London in different phases, you know, whether it's 
after the Blitz of World War II or after the Great Fire of 1666 or just economic expansion, um, redevelopment, whatever it is. Uh, we're sitting in a hostel that about 150 years ago is part of it was a church, part of it was a sailor's residence. Um, London is constantly changing. It just seems old to Americans because we change even faster than that, and we've right. got we don't have the depth of history. Yeah, I mean there there is there is far much uh, far less that we would consider, especially being in the Midwest. Like we think of late eighteen hundreds as as about as old as you're going to find stuff in terms of Western settlers and things like that. Yeah. But it, it also the other thing that I was really struck by was um, yesterday we were in Oxford and we were waiting to start a tour and students all took turns taking pictures in front of one of those iconic red uh, English slash London telephone boxes, right? Which I think you can all probably conjure in your heads, um, and you still see them everywhere. But of course, there's been a kind of technological change that's rendered those entirely obsolete. I'm not sure we've seen a single phone in them. Maybe one or two. I here. think there. I think there might be some just for the fun of it, but not really for a purpose. Right. But yeah. we don't need payphones in the year 2019. Now, some of them I think are kind of like Wi-Fi hotspots. But what actually struck me is they're becoming decrepit. We passed by one by the uh, British Museum where. Uh, British Telecom, BT, had actually put a sign saying, we don't own these anymore, we aren't responsible, because now they're turning into sites for graffiti slash public art. And as we were walking by Victoria Station a couple days ago, there was actually a little team removing a couple of those boxes. And like you kind of see what we think of, not as ancient, but as old, a fixture of the landscape in London is going away. Like if we did this trip two years from now, I think there would still be some there, but there would be fewer in like a decade from now. I can imagine them being gone. People right. eventually will forget that was ever part of the London. Well, and what's interesting is, is even if you look at the London skyline, which is, is actually a really pretty cool skyline. Mm-hmm. I saw it at the, at the Pret yesterday. They had it rendered in uh, in vegetables, like on <laughs> one of the pictures. And, and like they could carve up some vegetables, and you could tell, oh, that's London. Yep. Um, but even that is dominated by giant curvy glass buildings. Like there is, there's yeah. almost nothing old in the in the skyline. Um, because these things dominate the skyline, and like you said, they're they're constantly being being built. And so it'd be interesting to think about even 25 years from now, what does the iconic image of London look like? Right. So, and I think we'll get another version of this uh, tomorrow. We take the train across the channel or under the channel to go to Flanders in Belgium, and we start a World War One tour. And one thing I'm sure our tour guide will point out to those students is that you'll see a lot of buildings, and they'll seem old. None of them are more than 100 years old because they're all destroyed by World War One. They get rebuilt, and then a lot of them get destroyed by World War Two, and they get rebuilt. Um, all of which to say, I guess, is uh, old is you know uh, transitory and relative. And um, uh, I mean, I understand that draws Americans to Europe, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But uh, it, it actually is moving quite quickly. That'll be a theme I want to return to with another word later on. But I, I've yapped on long enough. Sam, what's your first word? Uh, the first word I'm going to go with is is a, a popular topic of conversation when here, which is coinage. So in um, does that rhyme with Garrett's? It does not rhyme with nothing. Garrett's. Rhymes with Garrett's. Not even close, actually. <laughs> no, you're not really trying too hard. At this no. Um, one of the things that you know, whenever you go to a different country, I mean, you, you use different currency and currency that's unfamiliar to you. And um, one of the things that the first time I came to to London struck me was the fact that there isn't a uh, paper pound note. There's not a one pound note right. uh, for paper. That those are now uh, those are now coins. And I would say that the the pound coin is among my favorite 
coins that oh, humans have ever created. The heft is great. Yeah, they're they're they have a kind of weight, so you don't even need to feel it with your fingertips. You can have it in your palm mm-hmm. and know, oh, that's a coin of value. Just they're 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 a certain thickness, and actually now they're. Um, when we were the old pounds were one type of metal now they're actually dual metal mm-hmm. coins they look really attractive mm-hmm. they're nice and heavy um and so part of me wants to say man i wish we had coins like that at the same time to have a i, I had this moment where we were having dinner yesterday and i had enough to pay for my meal in pound coins mm-hmm. but i thought if i put down 14 coins to uh, to pay for for meal in this in, in this pub like in the U.S., if you paid for a meal in coins, like, that would be super uncool. Right. So I didn't know about that. So now I'm not so sure how I feel. So I'm kind of curious, where are you at with, uh, with English currency versus U.S. currency? Uh, I think, like, a lot of things about London, it was fantastic the first few days, and the pleasures have worn off as you carry more and more of them around. Because it's usually my version of this is I'll think, okay, I could maybe pay for that, but then I think through, okay, but I've got to remember which coins are which, and that's like, I'll just slip you a 10-pound note and a 5-pound note, and, and get more coins back. And the most embarrassing thing, and this happens to, and, and I've, I've worked to avoid this, is to stand in front of a cashier with your palm up full of coins, and they start picking through looking right. for it, like, that is a shaming act, or at least you feel sh- you feel a lot of shame, so now I'm not so sure. They also have, like, like a tuppence coin, like we don't really need a twopence coin. Like they have too many different. I feel like that's just things. for the tourists. Like they somehow identify us and give us a bunch of tuppence coins because it's such a pointless. America did have this way back, like the early republic, and I think it went away pretty quickly. Um, the other thing that hit me is there is maybe it's just didn't notice it last time, but you're seeing more what the British call a contactless. Turns out you wave. Yes. You don't even swipe. You don't even insert. You just wave your debit card or whatever. Um, and actually, it's been kind of quaint to use so many coins and so much currency. Like, I've only used a debit card, really, to use ATMs, which yeah. itself is quaint. Like, one of the last transactions uh, I had before leaving Roseville was at the new food court at Rosedale, or the food hall. They don't take cash for every Everything is on yeah. a debit card I mean, do you, or do you, Apple Are you the type of person who, on an average day at Bethel, if I walked up to you, who would have paper money in your wallet? I always will have it, but I use it very rarely. I tend to use it for some reason, just for small transactions. I told you it was a lingering after effect of those days when they told you, we won't do a credit card transaction less than $5. And for some reason, I still am like, I'm deeply horrified right. at the idea. Anyway. It's very rare that I have money in my wallet. So that it's very strange now to be like, that's the only way that I'm doing this. But I do kind of like <laughs> it. Like I, I'm sure I could be using the card all the time if I wanted to, but I'm also worried that banks are going to reject it. Right. So right, right. there's something about going back to this old fashioned, you know, the paper, but especially that, to go back to the pound coin, like it feels like it has value. Not just a kind of abstract, by fiat, you know, we yeah, all fight like the system. Right, if society fell apart, somehow that would still have We should value. be hoarding these pound That's coins. That's right. And the tuppence, maybe. Maybe. All right. Do you have another word for us? Yeah, my second word is epiphany, which I or maybe, I'm going to say that doesn't rhyme with Garrett's right away. It's You could make it rhyme if you bend, maybe the, in, if you bend the, uh, the, the syllables a little bit. Maybe in German. That's maybe. right. So I thought of epiphany because that is the Christian season we are in, and it's just half happened that every time we do this trip happens to coincide with the beginning of Epiphany. And I always feel like Epiphany is the kind of redheaded stepchild of the liturgical calendar, right? Like Easter and Christmas, everyone with any connection to Christianity knows. Advent and Lent are cool kid kind of hipster, like, and people like love to enforce the rules of when it starts and stops. 
Pentecost. That's very Protestant thinking that you're doing there. Yeah, that's true. I'm betraying myself. Pentecost gets its whole movement named after it. And then there's Epiphany, which I bet if we asked our students before we went to church on Epiphany Sunday at St. Paul's Cathedral, maybe two of them could have told me what it was. Right? And it's, it's the revealing of Christ to the Gentiles especially. And, and so it starts with stories like the Magi, um, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist is a big part of this, and it concludes with the Transfiguration. So it's all about these uh, revealings, these unveilings, and, and it's a season of light. It's a big theme of Epiphany. So we actually not only took students to an Epiphany Sunday service in St. Paul's Cathedral, which was a very high church sung Eucharist, but there's a church on Trafalgar Square called St. Martin's in the Fields that always does an Epiphany carol service that we've gone to several times. And um, also a beautiful church, but... Um, a very different service. And so I've been thinking a lot about Epiphany. And I actually feel like it it really maps well onto what we're doing in some way. I mean, to the point where I joked the other day to you, I wish Bethel would stop calling J-term, J-term, and just call it Epiphany-term, because we're in Oxford and they have Hillary-term and Michaelmas-term. Because I actually think there's something that it resonates with education. So um, in the homily at St. Paul's, the... Um, the preacher, uh, his last name is Eisen, he's the dean of the cathedral, um, said that too often we think of mystery, which is one of the words in the text, that mystery is something that we find the answer to. And he said, no, mystery in Christianity is actually something we answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually described more in terms of it's a journey we're invited on in which we learn to see um, the world and ourselves differently. Right, it's something that we maybe we've we it's been in front of us this whole time. We finally notice it, and we or at least we see it from a different perspective, and that certainly aligns pretty well with how I think about education, especially how I think about this trip. Right, like in a sense, Europe doesn't seem like it's a very different place from the United States, and the 20th century doesn't seem like it's very different from the 21st. And in London, you get kind of flickers of epiphany that it's going to be different, but we're about to go on this battlefield tour, which. I think is a revealing of sort of like things are ripped away from you and you suddenly see the world very differently. And, and the tricky part, and I'll talk about it tonight in our class, is the, um, it's darkness, what you see, not light, right? And we're going to be tempted to want to look for light in these really dark stories. And I think for Christians, like, we need to be a little bit more comfortable with the darkness when we go to these cemeteries and these memorials where we wind up at Dachau later on, that we need to... That's something we'd rather look away from, but it needs to be revealed to us. And in many ways, that's the project of education. Well, it's interesting because when, when I think of epiphany, I actually don't think of religious epiphany The first mm-hmm. when I first hear that. Um, and I think of one of my favorite subjects, um, and this ties into what you're talking about in terms of life journey, education, these types of things, which is uh, James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. Is, is, it's a... You know, the, it's a story about the education of an artist, like the, 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 the coming of age of an artist, and it's arranged around a series of epiphanies in the lives. I mean, that's how Joyce talks about it. Like right. So it's not, it's not the full story, but it builds towards these moments of clarity and, and realization about things. But I think even the way that, that, that um, he talked about it, and that these are things we're in service to, yeah. like that even in some ways matches what Joyce is doing there too. So for me, it always circles back to Joyce. When sure it does. So, yeah. right. We're not even in Paris. Yet. Yeah, that's right. So you should read more Joyce. Okay. Uh, my second word, Chris, uh, you can tell me if this rhymes with Garrett's, is cup. Cup. Does cup rhyme with It Gertz? is one syllable. Right. But it does not rhyme it's with not Garrett's. It does not rhyme with no. Garrett's. No, and this is because as I, as I was here, 
um, sitting in my room, a, um, a picture fell off the wall, and I, I saw a note on the back, and it sent me on a quest for the Holy Grail. No, that's not what happened. But we did go to watch some people who were on the quest for a specific cup um, last Saturday, right? We did. Chris yeah. and I attended an FA Cup match. Incredible. Between uh, Birmingham and West Ham United. Birmingham City. Birmingham City right. and West Ham that's United, right. yes. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit about sort of your thoughts on... Well, going to an FA Cup. Match. I think you should explain what the FA Cup is for it, because the FA Cup is maybe the best kind of sporting. It's, it's kind of my favorite because we think about if we think about American sports, right? Mm-hmm. The, one of the the best events we have in American sports that pulls everyone together, even if you're not a sports fan, is March Madness. Yeah. So what the FA Cup is is it's sort of the um, it's sort of the English football equivalent of March Madness, but it lasts all year long, right. and it would be as if there was a, a single elimination knockout tournament for baseball that had all the major league teams, but also all the minor <laughs> league teams in it. And everybody's playing each other, and at the end, one team ends up victorious exactly. and wins this cup. So it's 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 not it's different than their league season. It just runs parallel to it, but it's this separate season, this separate tournament. Um, and it's fun to look, if you look at the history of it, there's often teams who aren't in the highest league who will make it to the final four, the final two, occasionally win the FA Cup. Yeah. So it's 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 one of my favorite uh, events to imagine. Like, what would this look like if I love I love single elimination knockout tournaments. So yeah, once in a while, even non-league teams, so kind of semi-pro or amateur teams, will do this. When I was in France doing research for my dissertation in grad school, um, I forgot what the French version of this is called, but the French version of the FA Cup, they do something similar. In the year I happened to be there, it was like a third or fourth division team. I mean, it was semi-pro players who all worked at a factory on a dock, or at least in my imagination, that's what mm-hmm. they did. I mean, it actually got, I think, all the way to the semifinals. And, I mean, it ended up being like a 1-0 game against one of, it wasn't, it was like Paris Saint-Germain or, or Olympe Marseille or something, but it was incredible. I was, I was so invested deeply in it. And even at this match that we went to, on Saturday, um, so this is in the 2012 Olympic Park. The Olympic Stadium became the London Stadium, which is West Ham United's uh, home home stadium. Which, by the way, is I think fantastic. It's great. Yeah, it's like 60,000 people. It's very bright, new, modern. Like we got like 10 pound tickets and every seat, great seats. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you got like the the spirit of it, which we should probably come back to, but. Like, West Ham was clearly the superior team. They scored within the second minute, and it felt like this was going to be like a 7-1 to match by the time it was done. But Birmingham kind of stuck in it, and it wasn't even that they weren't attacking. Like, they had more corner kicks than West Ham. And they had legit chances, especially mm-hmm. kind of the like minutes 50 through 80. Like, I would say like they had the better of play. Um, but then, and West Ham had a few chances, and they kept blowing their opportunity. And so it was fascinating, because in a sense, this doesn't matter. Right, like this doesn't have anything to do with the Premiership for West Ham United. It has nothing to do with getting to the Champions League. They're not even playing most of their starters most of the game, and yet, like the fans, like even know they all know this better than we do. Boy, they turned quickly. Yeah, there was significant dissatisfaction. It was really fun, and it was fun to know that they're upset at their team, and their team is winning and likely <laughs> going to win this game. But it was just fun, and it it sort of reminded me of. Um, when people would talk about like the old Brooklyn Dodgers, like the pre-Jackie Robinson Brooklyn Dodgers, how like 
the part of the fun of being a, a Dodgers fan is you could hate your team because they were because they they weren't what they could be and and but nobody else better yell at them or anything else but you can and it was just fun to just hear this sixty thousand people like making fun of their own players and and yeah it was it was sometimes cool. quite profanely yes too. and they ended up scoring a header to kind of seal it in the last couple of minutes but. I, it's easy to imagine that game having been a draw, in which case they do they actually replay the whole game at the other city stadium, mm-hmm. which is kind of fantastic. Or even like it, it's not out of the realm of imagining that Birmingham could have won two to one, and right. that would have been it for West Ham United, and they would have had to lick their wounds and go back to Premiership play against. I think Arsenal was coming up right, next. Right. So yeah, it, it's it. I, I I generally wish we had something more like our major minor league systems have evolved to the point. It's mostly thanks to Branch Rickey and the St. Louis Cardinals system in the 30s, where the major league team simply owns the minor league teams. That's not how it used to be. Like, I mean, like, the Pacific Coast League now is the highest level of minor league baseball, but it was the West Coast alternative to the major leagues. It almost became a rival major league after World War II until the Dodgers and Giants showed up. It's like there's a version of American history where you got something a little bit more like this. And, like, the International League, Pacific Coast League were kind of, like, one division down. Southern League was another division down. Like, Carolina League. And, like, it would have been amazing to have something like this. And I think we do have it in soccer where, like, the MLS will play kind of the next divisions down. But, I mean, it's soccer in America. It's not football in Britain. Right, right, right. This is all just an ad for a new podcast that Sam Mulberry, Chris Moore, and I are going to be doing starting sometime this spring. Stay tuned on the live from AC Second Network. All right, should we get to my third? Yes, let's final? hear it. So my third word for nothing rhymes with Garrett's this episode in London is tube. Tube does not rhyme with Garrett's. It's a lovely word, though, isn't it? It is. So tube, obviously in London, uh, this alludes to a mass transit system. So the London Underground starts, I think it's kind of 1860s, 70s is the first line, and expands. So one thing that's nice about the tube is, now it just seems like a single network that's like kind of color-coded. Those were actually all like distinct railways that... So that's why you have, like, the Northern Line and the Piccadilly Line. Like, they're all actually, they were companies at one point. But now they're this incredibly tightly integrated network um, that spans, like, six zones of travel. It's connected to the train system that goes nationally, internationally. There's a bus system. There's, like, ferry boats. Um, And it's kind of incredible. Coming from a city in America that has mass transit, and I'll take light rail once in a while, I've used the buses before, I used them in grad school a lot, but it was nothing like this. And, and you realize the difference in life when the car does not drive everything. Mm-hmm. And so it just got me thinking about the way the tube is mostly unseen, right? Like, And it, it really is like this circulatory system in the broadest sense, that it... Um, it is connecting all these disparate populations, all these disparate sections, businesses, tourism, culture, etc., putting together. And what it actually made me think about, because it was tubes, was I was listening to a like a public radio broadcast on my drives this summer about what's called the Wood Wide Web. Have you heard about this? No. Okay. So I actually found a book about this in Oxford yesterday and kind of refreshed my memory. So apparently... Uh, People who study forestry science and and biologists and others who study these things have discovered forests, not just the trees, but forests are living collective organisms. Hmm. Um, And it works through a variety of things, but mostly they're types of essentially wood fungi in the soil that live symbiotically with trees. And so they connect the roots of the trees, and they're like... I I, I don't even believe it, but like in a square inch of forest soil, they're like a million miles 
of these kind of fungal networks. Mm. I mean, they're, they're like sure. filaments, right? Sure. But they do a lot of things. They actually move, like, um, they decompose foods, and that becomes sugars for the trees. Okay. So, for example, I remember the radio broadcast saying that they found um, salmon, yeah, salmon DNA in trees because bears would eat most of the salmon and the rest of it would decompose, and the fungi would turn that into sugars that would make their way into the trees. Oh, interesting. But the really interesting thing is that trees communicate with each other through these networks. They actually send not just chemical compounds, but electrical signals to warn of danger, or to warn of, like, if a disease strikes part of the forest, those dying trees actually communicate to the other trees via this network. And so scientists have taken to calling this the wood wide web. Wow. And so there's this whole, like, forest underground. There's this whole elaborate tube. And it made me think, like, in a way, like, this is what we've been participating in. Like, add on, like, fiber optic network. I mean, there are all sure, these networks. Sure. There are electrical networks and other networks that we never see that make a city function. In a sense, it just made, it's made me feel like we're just kind of trees walking around. It's, well, it's funny. Even we were in Oxford yesterday, which is also the... The uh, the place where J.R.R. Tolkien was, and this just sounds very ant like, right? Doesn't you know, it? trees looking out for other trees, and yeah, I mean, apparently it even crosses species. This book said that I was really, looking at. yeah, it was utterly fascinating. I was like, because I had heard this show back in like July. I was driving out east doing research, and so I had hours to kill. And then to find this book sitting on display at um, Blackwells or something was, um, I think, fortuitous. That is fascinating. There you go. We've learned something. All right. Today. So here's my last word. I think you wished this rhyme with Gertz. Uh, my I, word. I love it so much. My word. Is Tweety? Can I just change my name to Tweety? <laughs> no, <laughs> make it easier. I, see, I already made a joke about the, the Holy Grail, so I won't make a joke about a tweed jacket that I was thinking of <laughs> buying while here in London. Um, <clears throat> you've been talking uh, on this trip about uh, a book that you had been reading, had and, and finished reading, um, which was an autobiography from one of your favorite musicians. Oh yeah, my, say? probably okay. my favorite. Okay, um, and it's a musician that I am barely familiar with, uh, named Jeff Tweety, mm-hmm. who's the uh, Frontman, would that be? Sure. Okay. Of yeah. uh, the band Wilco. Um, Which gives us the theme music for this <laughs> the random name generators off their album Star Wars. <laughs> right. Which has a picture of a cat, actually, right. oddly. Figures prominently at the beginning of the book. That's right. Um, and because I like reading autobiographies, especially uh, artist autobiographies, uh, you were talking about this enough. To, so I sat down and read the book yesterday. Um, and so this has sort of been, we, this has sort of led to kind of interesting conversations uh-huh. about. Um, it's interesting to read an autobiography, one of us, where it's somebody whose work you're deeply familiar with, and I have heard a couple Wilco songs, <laughs> right. you know, so it's, but, but, I, but I actually found the book really fascinating, really interesting, um, kind of in terms of how he thinks about the creation of, um, the creation of art, the meaning of art once it's created, um, creative processes, mm-hmm. things like this, and it was interesting to read without being bogged down in the, like, fanboy nature of, oh, I love that song. Like, I just, he would talk about albums, and I'd be like, I'll take your word for it that it's, that this is about this, or that this sounds like this, you know, so, um, I was curious, but it's interesting to talk to you, because your, uh, uh, experience of reading the book is so much different, because it's, it's a, a collection of art that you're, invested in and very familiar with. Right, and the nature, maybe this is true of all art, but it, you know, maybe especially like rock and roll, the way it's done in the 20th century, like, in the same way that those British fans are deeply invested in West Ham, you know, like, that. that's how I feel about Wilco and Jeff Tweedy and Uncle Tupelo before Wilco, and so, like, I was glad that you enjoyed it, because I knew that I would enjoy it on many levels, and also feel uncomfortable with it, because you realize this is someone I've never met 
someone I'm never going to meet, probably not even on social, I've even, like, tweeted Wilco a couple times mm-hmm. and never got a response back. Um, and yet, you feel like you've got this right to kind of listen in on their lives, mm-hmm. to, to judge them constantly. And so I guess I appreciate the willingness to rip the curtain down and, and just go ahead and explain, not just kind of like band conflict and, and process of like how you make an album, write a song, but childhood and adolescence, and there are a couple of famous falling outs within these couple of bands with a couple of um, guitar players named Jay, right? Which, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's where I was curious whether this would even mean anything to because like he even jokes at the beginning of the book, like these are all things I'm going to talk about, right? right. And, and like it's... He only needs to say the name Jay, and instantly every Wilco fan knows at least one of those two that he's going to talk about. And to you, that means nothing. Right. Well, I mean, if, if, I can, if I can circle it back to being very on-brand for me, um, I've already talked about Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. Like, I'm interested in the story of how do you... Because I, I, was, so I was deeply interested in the childhood stuff. Yep. Like, like, where does somebody who commits their life to creating something... Because I think uh, as children, we a lot of people have impulses to want to do things and make things and not everybody either has the opportunity, the ability, or the follow through to do that. But mm-hmm. the people who do do that and keep doing that and I mean and I will say like I mean Jeff Tweedy is a famous person mm-hmm. but he's also not a meteorically famous no. musician. Like there's plenty of people you could say that name to and they'd be like, I don't know who that is. You could even say, Oh, Van Wilco and they'd be like, right. I, I don't I don't know what that is. Um, I'm almost that person, so, um, so, so, but he's, you know, and that's even part of the story in terms of like, yeah, I'm not sure that I care about a record contract anymore, and like, and how those interests shift and stuff over time. Yeah, I mean, at one level, I mean, so his dad worked for the railroad, and it doesn't sound like his dad ever would have thought to write a memoir, but like, by the end of it, his dad could have written a book like this, Mm because it's really... It's a book about work, right, and calling and career and kind of learning to live with things. And it, it also seems like, I would say, very Midwestern in that sense. It's very Definitely. unassuming. It's very self-deprecating, um, sarcastic in spots. And at the day, you just kind of feel like this is someone who's got a routine. He's, he checks into work mm-hmm. at a certain time. They go home to his kids, and it seems very boring in that sense. But it's also, I think, a really thoughtful reflection on the nature of creativity. and mm-hmm. um, So the process you mentioned, which is why I thought you would be interested, because I know you're interested in creative practices and kind of what goes on behind that curtain. Um, but also it's interesting just how much he really attributes to the importance of creating things. Mm-hmm. Almost the point where he says, like, at one point, his, his favorite part of the song is when it's simply potential and then going through the process of making a song and, and how he talks about like lyric writing and how it matches up to his guitar playing is very interesting and how you do this in the context of a band and how long you keep going. He also says the worst part is when you're done mm-hmm. and it's no longer potential, it's a finished product. And that's why I think at least in a few phases in their career, their favorite thing to do is like do that and then destroy the song and reassemble it, mm-hmm. which we saw some artistic versions of at the tape written on Friday. Um, but what he says, I mean, one thing I'll say, he says... He's agnostic, pretty famously. Well, he goes, I think, to a Reformed Jewish synagogue with his family. He says, like, if you were... I mean, the closest he gets to a sense of God is that God is creator, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this sense, then, I'll interpret it in my own language, that if we're made in the image of God, we are made to be creative, right? And there's something about participating in that process 
maybe even making podcasts mm -hmm. or writing Charles Lindbergh biographies or designing a course out of nothing. Where I, I mean, that's where I resonated. Like, I actually wrote a lot of songs in grad school. I play guitar. I sing. I'm nothing like this, but it was pretty easy to kind of line this up to things that I do get to do, and it mostly made me feel grateful that I do have a kind of job that enables mm -hmm. I me and that pays me to do that, really, right, and actually right. rewards me for doing that to a significant extent. Well, I think it's important um, for me, for anyone listening to this, and, 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 and it's, it's clear in, in Tweedy's book that, like, when he talks about <laughs> making art or creating, it's really the broad sense of that, yeah. that it isn't like when we say we're creating the image of God, that means we should be creators. It doesn't mean we should all be in a rock band. No. Yeah. I mean, it means we should knit or make quilts mm -hmm. or build things or make just any, I mean, really any sense of kind of making things. Like, well, like, 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 like where's where an outlet for you to put part of who you are into something out into the world? Well, I, at one point in our, our walking conversation, you talk about Etsy. Yeah. I forgot, who is the... Chris Gethard. So, right. uh, uh, so I'll recommend yeah, a book. too. Um, it's called... Uh, Okay, and I'm going to apologize because it's it's the book is blanketed in sort of a self-helpy book, but it's called Lose Well uh, by Chris Gethard, who's one of my favorite comedians. Um, and he, come, much like Tweety, comes from, to a certain degree, like a little bit of a punk rock aesthetic. Um, and, and Gethard, as he's trying to encourage people to do this very thing, which is to just start making stuff, is, is you know, he says some people will be turned off by if you look at, like, especially 80s punk rock and be like, well, that's not me. And he says, actually, the most punk rock thing in the world is Etsy because it's just people who make monogrammed lace doilies and, like, sell them. And, like, they don't need to be part of some corporate machine. To, like, you can just make things and sell them. And, and, and Gether talks about the first time that he, when he was a kid and he um, saw a band and they had a, t a tape of their music. And, like, and his first question to the guy who was not much older than him was, who let you do this? And he was like, nobody let us do this. We just did it. And I think with, with the way technology is now, with the democratization of media, the fact that we can sit here on an, on an old iPod and record a podcast, which within an hour is going to be available to everyone in the entire world, like the barriers for who, who lets you do that it, it is so low now. Um, but, but I think we let our sense of those barriers, and maybe that is... a a voice of someone we heard when we were a kid or a parent or whatever tell us that we can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Like, we create barriers that aren't there, I think. And, and my encouragement would be um, that, that you know, more of the stuff we talk about, oh, we should do this or we should do that, that we should pick a couple of those things out and just do them. You know, and I'm saying that to myself. I'm saying that to everybody I've ever had a, a conversation with about, about like, hey, do you want to put a podcast together or do you want to make a movie or do you want to make a... Uh, a TV show or TV series, like, we actually have all the tools to do that. We should just start doing that. Right. Like, that was kind of a nice bookend. Having started by talking about old, we start with, go out and make something new. Yeah. Which, of course, is how those things that are old came into being in the first place. That's right. All right. So, we do recommend a couple of books. So, Chris Gethard's... Uh, as well. And Jeff Tweedy, I can never remember the name. Uh, let's go so we can get back. Good job. We'll put links to that on the show page that I usually do at Schoolman. Dot com. Uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts about anything we've talked about, if you have words you want to suggest, you know, I think we actually do enjoy doing this. We just don't always think about uh, doing this. So if you want to give us words, how can they contact us, Sam? Uh, 
Is it live from AC Second at yeah, email? Yeah, gmail.com, yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure, checking that email. Or you can email us if you know our Bethel, know us from Bethel, you can get us at those email addresses yeah. too or leave a comment. So, so are we going to do a live show in Paris? Or well, I don't know. I feel like we should. <laughs> Anybody who wants, if you're in Paris, if you're listening to this, drop on by. Paris, yeah, come on by. Okay. Well, I hope this turns out well. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, so until next time, this is Chris Garrett's with. And Sam Mulberry. From Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.